So Jameson has already made this a national holiday of some kind. It's a glorious thing to be together on a baptism Sunday. And of course, we all kind of know that there, there's that other national holiday today that is Super Bowl Sunday, right? <laughs> the, uh, the gatherings, to, how many of you are headed to a Super Bowl party tonight? Oh, fewer than I, fewer than I thought. That's probably a post-COVID reality. Um, and how many of you bought special food to watch the Super Bowl buy. So a lot of money gets spent on Super Bowl parties and a lot of money gets spent on the kind of food that goes into them. A lot of gets, money gets spent betting on the Super Bowl. And so people who make advertisements know this. And so they pay a lot of money to advertise during the Super Bowl. So, so I mean, part of, part of what the Super Bowl is about here is these two guys, right? <laughs> The drama of Patrick and Brock. Patrick Mahomes, the wily veteran of Super Bowl, Super Bowl's past, and Brock Purdy, the last person taken in the draft a couple of years ago, and all, all the drama builds around it. But for a lot of us, how many of you just watch the ads? <laughs> Our son Sam only watches the ads and does a review on them for his college newspaper each year. Uh, so if you, if you want to check out which ones were best, he knows, um, in the Wesleyan Argus. Um, but I, I do want to pay attention to the ads because last year we saw a poor guy who got his hand stuck in a Pringles, you know, the little tube that Pringles are in. He got his hand stuck in and he was walking around feeling stupid and an older, wiser gentleman came up and said, don't worry, that happens a lot. And they find out that a surgeon is trying to do surgery with a Pringles uh, tube on and, and there, there's a judge gaveling with a Pringles. You know, it's, it's, it's a thing apparently to get your hand stuck in Pringles. And I remember a, an ad in 2000, it was when the dot-com bubble was at its height and it showed this ER-like moving scene where, where the people are coming in with a guy, rushing him to surgery, and everybody's saying stat when they're supposed to say stat. And it's a very hurried affair. And the doctor on the way asks, what is the diagnosis? And it says, he has money coming out the wazoo, right? <laughs> E-Trade didn't catch me, but it caught my recollection. We remember these things, and ad people know we do because we, we buy their stuff. Right? Last year, while all those ads were playing, suddenly all those ads which were trying to get us to go out and get things we want or need, Jesus showed up. Did anybody of you notice? Do you remember this? Tens of millions of people got a glimpse of Jesus, and the way that it was done was creative and innovative. This group, he gets us, had already done a few ads before this. But in this ad, they showed people from, the, from photographs that were in newspapers or on newscasts in the last year, people angry with one another and obviously yelling at each other across race lines or across political lines and some about to hit each other in the subway or in an airplane and, and all of these angry faces looking like they're about to attack one another at a demonstration or another place of division. And it was kind of very loud, frantic music, and all of these things are playing, and suddenly it stops, and a, a blank screen comes up, and then the words, Jesus loved all the people we hate. Right? 
Here was a group that wanted to introduce an alternative. They're from Western Michigan, and they had gotten together and they had said, we look around us and we see a, a, a nation that's too angry, that's too divided, that's too up in arms with one another, and we want to help. What if we bring Jesus to the Super Bowl? And they did, and it ended up the second most talked about and viewed of all the ads. I don't know what got first, but it ended up being seen and being heard and being understood because Jesus showed up at the Super Bowl. What we're going to talk about this morning has to do with listening to the world around us as faithful people, as Christian folk, as disciples of Jesus, listening to the world around us and asking what God wants to do through us, among us, and the word that gets put on that attitude or that way of being is often the word missional. And so Thomas thought it would be a nice thing to do. I have recently been asked to, after a year of kind of helping you along with some courageous conversations, preaching every once in a while, I've been asked recently to come on half time and, and be what's called the director of the Institute for Missional Formation. Now, how many of you knew there was an Institute of Missional Formation at Covenant Presbyterian Church? There are three of you. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, we don't know about this. We do know that Thomas uses the word missional a lot, and, and the, the preaching crew use the word missional a lot. But, but we don't exactly know what that institute is and what it's up to in the life of, of this church. And the title says that it has to do with formation. We're going to have to sort that out this morning too. Why would formation have to do with being missional? So, in this time, coming off a Jesus-shaped Super Bowl ad, we're going to go to what may seem like an odd place in the Bible. We're going to go to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah the prophet lived hundreds of years before Jesus and, and lived in a time when the, the southern part of Israel, Jerusalem and Judah, had just been taken over by King Nebuchadnezzar after 400, 500 years of living under their own monarchy. Suddenly a king, a Babylonian king called Nebuchadnezzar has decided it's time to take over that plot of land and, they, and he has put a siege in on, on Jerusalem, burned the palace to the ground, burned the temple to the ground, and hauled a whole lot of people off into exile in present-day Iraq, ancient Babylon. And the people who have been hauled off are confused, where's God in all this, are angry, are wondering what they ought to do with a new culture and a new, uh, new language and, and a religion they don't quite get because they miss their temple. And some of them have the instinct just to hunker down and wait it out. Just hunker down and wait it out. Jeremiah's description of what they ought to do instead, as he sits in smoldering Jerusalem, still smoldering from the burning down, as he writes to these faithful people who are confused and, and frustrated, he says some things that sound an awful lot like what Jesus did for a living. So, Jeremiah 29, somebody earlier this morning said, I've heard a lot of sermons on Jer Jeremiah 29, but they weren't about this part. There's a great verse coming after this. You have been my hope, O sovereign Lord, my confidence since my youth. 
And, and oh, excuse me, the, the one that comes after this, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And that sounds great. This is what sets the table for that. So let's, let's listen to, together for the word of God as it comes to us from Jeremiah chapter 29. These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles and the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters into marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts, be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So Jeremiah wanted Israel, wanted the people in exile to look around, to listen to their neighborhood, to ask what's getting in the way of this place's welfare and how can we be a part of breaking through those obstacles? The word welfare here, we probably immediately associate with government programs or something like that. The word behind it, the Hebrew word, is shalom. A word that we sometimes translate peace, but sometimes welfare, and neither word quite gets to the whole thing. What Jeremiah is saying is seek the, the absolute flourish and thriving of the city where you reside. Pray for its, its shalom. Because in its shalom, you'll find your own shalom. Thriving, flourish, those are things you should look to help along in this, uh, what, God-forsaken land? In this not God-forsaken land, it turns out. The God of Israel has plans for this place and wants you to be a part of it. Now, we've, we've generally called that in churches, we've generally called the looking out for neighbors and the reaching out to the world, we've uh, generally used the word mission. I want you to pop words out for me. What comes to mind when you hear the word mission? What do you picture? You got to say it loud enough for me to hear, but don't be bashful. Helping others. Conversion. Travel. Third world. Third world, overseas, right? We, we associate going out and sometimes going out internationally, but we also heard um, conversion and we heard helping others. And you all have, in a way, have nailed the categories in which for 2,000 years Christians have thought about what mission is. It's evangelism. That is telling the good news about Jesus. Karl Barth said, it's one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. Right? 
Evangelism, sharing the good news of the gospel. Jesus enjoins it on us in Matthew 28, where he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And, and lo, I'm with you always until the end of the age. Right? We're sent out to evangelize. Now, it's not always in front of tens of thousands of people in a big arena like Billy Graham is here. It can be a neighbor talking to a neighbor, but evangelism is one of the ways that Christians have looked at reaching out at Jesus' behest. A second is one that we heard, service. Comes from Matthew 25 where Jesus tells the, the parable of the sheep and the goats. And he puts the sheep on his right and the goats on his left and he sorts them about how they have treated the, the people of the nations. And, and he says, um, you, you who are on my right, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked, you clothed me. I was in prison, you visited me. All of these things. And, and they say, well, when? We didn't ever see you, Jesus. And he says, in as much as you've done it to the very least of these, my brothers and sisters, you've done it to me. So every time we give a cup of cold water, Jesus is on the other end of it. Every time we feed, every time we build houses, every time we do those kinds of things that Christians have been doing in service for a long time, Jesus said, you're doing it for me. Number two. Three, justice. I have MLK here, partly because we're, we're coming off his day and partly because we're in Black History Month, but mostly because he wrote a sermon about the Good Samaritan parable that helps us understand the difference between service and justice. Justice is another way that that Christians have uh, sort of taken up life with the world over history, but it's a little harder for us to understand and it's a little harder for us to trace in Jesus. Uh, MLK had notes from a sermon on the Good Samaritan in which he said, you know, I love that that guy stopped, that Good Samaritan stopped and helped the poor fellow in the ditch. But we got to talk about why there are so many muggings on that road. Do you see the difference? Cup of cold water is given to need, but what if we reduce the need? That's a systems and structure thing, and we see it in Jesus's throwing down the tables of the money changers in the temple. He wants to disrupt a corrupt system that is keeping people out of forgiveness from God that is keeping people out of the temple worship because they can't afford it because there's gouging going on. So we've got evangelism, we've got service, we've got justice. Those are three ways that Christians have entered the world redemptively, right? We would call those mission, and when they manifest themselves in churches like this one, they usually manifest themselves with an announcement of a time and a place. Right? We're going to go serve at a soup kitchen, show up at 9 on Saturday morning. We'll get there at 9.30. You'll be done by noon. Or, <clears throat> or excuse me, we're going to go and march on the Capitol about this issue or that issue. Or whatever form it's taking, maybe even it's going to be we're, we're going to set up an outreach and an evangelism uh, attempt. Show up at this time. We'll craft some things for us to use. It's usually event-oriented and has a beginning and end of time. Missional is a different thing. If those are mission efforts, missional is a way of being. It's a way of being in the world that leans toward the neighbor. And therefore, it's the context in a life 
in which doing those deeds of service and evangelism and justice makes sense. Right? And so, so we get shalom is in the service of the people, missional identity or being a missional sort of person or church is the kind of person who looks around and pays attention. Right? Being missional asks always what's getting in the way of people's flourish and how might I be useful? What is God going to do with me to show up in this setting? And so we get this definition of, of the shift to missional from a guy that Thomas referenced in the sermon series, has several times actually in sermons. His name is Daryl Guder. He was one of Thomas's main mentors in the city of Atlanta when Thomas was just starting to do his ministry. And when he left for Princeton, you may remember, he's the guy Thomas threw his arms around Daryl Guder's leg and said, you cannot go. I'm sorry it's a good offer, but you have to be here with me. If you remember that moment, this is the guy and here's what he says about mission. Mission is not just a program of the church. It defines the church as God's sent people. Either we're defined by mission or we reduce the scope of the gospel and the mandate of the church. Thus, our challenge today is to move from a church with mission events to a missional church. Do you see the difference? And you know the problem with both of them is that we don't wake up in the morning saying, Lord, how can I be of service today? How can I be of service to that neighbor down the street who's annoying to me? How can I be of service? How can I be of service in this city where conflict is rife? How can I be of service? We don't, we don't just fall out of bed thinking that way because we are human. And when Augustine, the great saint of the 4th century, and Martin Luther, the great reformer of the 16th century, when they tried to put their hand on what the human predicament is, when they tried to get their head around it, they used this Latin phrase. Anybody know Latin? Hey, good, yes. You can kind of see it in the word. Incurvatus in se means curved in or bent in on myself that I revolve around myself naturally, and it takes something to move me out. It takes something to get me from in se out to showing up as God hopes in the world and, and having an inclination toward other people's good, even above my own. And so, you know how that happens in you, and I know how it happens in me, but we probably better get some scripture because it happens in some of the heroes of faith in the scriptures. In Genesis 12, and I'm not going to read all of this, but I want you to read with me the last two or three lines. Uh, Genesis 12, Abram and Sarai are called away from Haran to go to a new promised land. And God says, you're going to be great. Your name's going to be great. You're going to have a lot of family. And then at the end, all the families of the earth shall be blessed through you, right? In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, there are a lot of families because in chapter 11 of Genesis, God has just pointed out that there are many peoples in many places who speak different languages, right? So all the families of the earth will be blessed in you is kind of a big deal, there are a lot of them. But Abram says, this is great, and he moves, and he loves those first several blessings. 
but he never quite gets around to that blessing all the nations thing. In fact, from Genesis 12 through the early chapters of Exodus, so it's about 40 chapters worth of Bible and four generations of people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the Jacob's sons that include Joseph, none of them ever mention, you know, we really ought to get around to being a blessing to all the families of the earth. It's, a, it's not even back burner. It's completely out of their view. In fact, they have to be dragged to Egypt by famine to start even pondering the notion that God could love Egyptians too. And if those, if Abram and Sarai aren't saintly enough for you, the ones who always have halos around their heads in the art are the, are the early Christian apostles. It's Peter, Andrews, James, John, all those folks, right? Well, here's the story of how they were called to go into the world. Jesus says, and I'm going to skip a little again, see the fourth from the bottom, fifth from the bottom line, but you will receive power. It's just after the resurrection, just before Pentecost. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Again, this is bonus coverage. We, we're being called to be God's partners in reaching the whole world of people. And it sounds exciting. But seven chapters later in the book of Acts, Pentecost has happened. They've started to add 3,000 and then 5,000 people to their numbers. Everything is going very cool. They have to start a new bureaucracy and put deacons in charge of distributing the food because there are so many people and they can't, the apostles can't keep track of it. Seven chapters in, nobody has mentioned, hey, how about, a, how about we get beyond the Jerusalem thing and do the Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth bit? Isn't that something? They were commissioned to four things, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. Nobody has an inclination to get out of their comfort zone and go to any of those other places because Jerusalem's just fine, thank you. The thing that ultimately drives them out is Stephen is killed in a stoning and everybody gets scared, so they go out. And it's not until then that they find out, hey, God seems to love these people too. We share with the Abram and Sarai and the ancient apostles this inclination to be curved in, in our, on ourselves. And we know it, and Paul says, the good that I wish I do not do. I practice the very evil that I do not wish. We know it, but it's why when we say, we love to do mission, we aren't exactly saying we are people who are missional. Because we may have showed up for that soup kitchen event, or we may have gone to Belize or, or Cuba, or we may, have, we may have participated in any number of mission uh, things that go on in the church, and they are great to go on, and they help us, and they help the people we help, but it hasn't yet made us missional. Because it's this prescribed time and place, and it doesn't cover everything we think, right? And so we are in curvatus, in say, are you starting to see a little bit why formation would come into this business, right? Why formation would matter because we aren't naturally in a way God needs to change us. But here's the thing. Has anybody heard a sermon lately on change? You've got to, if you didn't hear the five-part sermon series that brought us into this year, I'm a connoisseur of good preaching. I listen to it wherever I can find it. I go to a lot of churches and listen to a lot of preachers. I listen online. That is one of the two or three best sermon series that I've ever heard, right? And it's on change and how we can be confident that God can change us, that God can transform us 
as Paul says, by the renewing of our minds, right? That God can change us. And the place that, that, that Thomas landed us to learn about that, the place that Thomas landed to give us confidence that we can change and some clues to how we might change is Acts chapter 9. And as we remember Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, I'd like us to remember the question, if God is changing us, what is God changing us into? Thomas spent five weeks helping us be confident that God can change us and calling us to put everything on the table and finding guides for our journey and all those things. But what is God changing us into? There will be individual parts of that. But what is the formation that's happening in the course of this change? In Acts chapter 9, something freaky happens to Paul. We've been sitting with that for, for five weeks. He gets thrown off his horse on the road to Damascus, and he's on the ground, and a bright light shines and he hears a voice from heaven say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he looks up and he says, who are you, man? And the voice comes and just absolutely baffles him. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And Saul has been persecuting a lot of people in Jerusalem and he's going to persecute people in Damascus because he thinks that, as we found, he thinks that's what he ought to be doing. That voice is up there, and those people are on the ground. How in the world does this work? And it's there that Paul starts, the, the seed is, is sort of planted for Paul realizing, wait a second, he's doing something through them. That, that voice is living through these people that I was trying to quench, put away. And so we get to a mystery in the, in the Bible. Acts chapter 1, verse 1 starts weirdly. And it may not sound weird as I read it, but listen to why it's weird. In the first book, in my first book, he wrote the book of Luke and he wrote the book of Acts. So here he says, in my first book, O Theophilus, I wrote about, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Began to do and teach. How many of you read the Gospel of Luke? It's 24 chapters, it, it contains the anticipation of Jesus' birth, his birth, his 12-year-old self, his ministry of healing and preaching and serving and, and doing all the things that Jesus is known for in his life, his uh, ride into Jerusalem, his week in Jerusalem that we'll, we'll be celebrating his Holy Week, his cross, death, resurrection, and his appearance to the disciples. Did Jesus do anything else? Is there anything else beyond what he, quote, began to do and to teach? Spoiler alert, Jesus doesn't show up on the ground in the book of Acts. He, he shows up through the church. Acts says the church is Jesus part two. And you know what? It doesn't just mean that church. It means this church. So if... If Jesus is a guy who looks around and attends to people and pays attention and figures out what's getting in the way of the flourish, so he sees a, a, a man with leprosy and sees that he's separated from everybody and he goes and helps him, or he sees a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, sees she's separated from everybody and so goes and listens to her, sees a woman at a well in Samaria whose life is, is torn up and listens to her and, and gives her living water, if Jesus is a guy who listens and attends, 
The church is being made into that. In fact, in Antioch, when the church gets to chapter 10 into 11 of Acts, that'll be the first time anybody ever calls them Christians. The word comes from the Greek, Christianoi, and you know what it means? Tiny Jesus, tiny Christ, little Christ. It was meant as a, it was meant as a derision, as a ridicule by the people who saw the Christians. They said, oh, you tiny Christ, you Christettes, you know. But they took it as a compliment. You mean we look like him? I'll take it. I'll take being a Jesus Babahead doll. I'll, I'll do that any time, right? You think I look like him? The church in Acts is endeavoring to and actually hoping in becoming more and more like the Jesus who looks around and sees what people need and goes toward that need with some kind of help. Jesus was the only one in history who did that all the time, who woke up in the morning and thought, who can I help? Who didn't suffer that incurvatus uh, in Seth thing. God is making us into, forming us into little Jesuses, people who lean toward the world and its needs and its obstacles, who live alongside the world and say, I know what you mean. He gets us. So how do we form missional people? It's not a bad idea to read this kind of stuff. It's not a bad idea to come to worship and so put our eyes on God that we almost forget about ourselves. To go to a Bible study and find out maybe I'm not the center of the universe. To gradually chip away at that thing that puts me in the middle of everything when Super Bowl Sunday ads come around. And move me into a place where other things, God, other people, sit at the center of my universe. Missional formation sets us up to be a people who lean toward the world. And you know what? One of the humbling things about being missional, whether it shows itself in a courageous conversation that tries to help us and others uh, get across red-blue lines, or it shows up in a, a group that's the Faith and Firearms Courageous Conversation last May, gave birth to a little group of people who said, you know what? We want to get our hands around this issue because half of us seem to be pro-guns or pro-guns rights and half of us want gun control. We ought to figure out how to talk to one of that group has met for its fifth time now. And they went to, we went to a gun show last week in Taylor to, to try to see what was going on. We'll go soon to a demonstration by anti-guns people together so that we get to listen to the, the community. It may look like my, my neighbors don't get along. None of us seem to know one another. I'm going to be block party lady. Right? Those covenant people, we don't know what else they do, but they bring neighborhoods together. It's a, it's a ground for innovation. It's a becoming a missional person becomes all kinds of exciting because we get to be improvisational in figuring out how God wants to be in the world, how Jesus wants to show up, not just at the Super Bowl, but in our neighborhoods, in our city, in our world. And one of the humbling things is that when we get there, we may find that God has already done. We have become, in Bonhoeffer's words, if Jesus is a man for others, then the church, if it is to be the church, must be a people for others. As we become that more and more, one of the humbling things is we start to move toward the world and we find out God's already got there. 
How many of you watched the Grammys? Anybody? Grammys, glitzy, red carpet, what are you wearing, who are you wearing, right? Um, all the usual award show questions and there's a whole lot of size and, and glamour and glitz and precision and professionalism. And then Tracy Chapman comes up with Luke Combs. Now Tracy Chapman is a 59-year-old uh, queer woman, black woman, who broke out in 1988 at a Mandela rally in Wembley Stadium. Luke Combs is a 33-year-old good old boy from North Carolina who sings country and is straight and white. In 1988, Tracy Chapman released her song, Fast Car. In 2023, Luke Combs asked, you know what, this means something to me. My dad played it to me as I was a when I was a kid. I could tap into this question, do I belong in this America? And Tracy gave him the permission to cover the song, to sing it in his own way and record it. And it went to number one on the, on the country charts and, and two on the billboard charts. So there are two parallel musicians. And Grammy called him and said, why don't we get, get you on the stage? America needs this. And so last Sunday night, the Sunday before the Super Bowl, these two got on stage and sang Fast Car together, a song about who belongs in the American setting. And people started to go onto social media and say, I'm crying and I don't understand why. It was a healing moment in America and neither of them said, I wanted Jesus to show up here. Jesus just showed up anonymously. It's a humbling thing about it being a missional people. But it's what we could be. We could be, Covenant Church could be, each of us could be the way Jesus shows up in the world, in our little corner, in the, in the neighborhood, in the city of Austin. That's what God is calling us to. That's what God is changing us into. So, shall we become a missional people? Amen? Amen. Amen.